Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips, tools, and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And this is such an incredible episode. I'm so excited for you to be able to hear this connection, this conversation. We are speaking with John Giordano, and he is an author and addictions expert. He has gone through incredible life transformation. His story is unbelievable. We didn't even get to cover all of his story because there's so many parts to it. And he shares this life transformation from the stigma of childhood sexual abuse, homelessness, and severe addiction to being a renowned addiction expert with 36 years of sobriety. He started his own holistic treatment center with only $300, which he eventually sold for $45 million. Currently, he is published author of three books, including his latest book, which I've just ordered, The Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. And he is the chaplain of the North Miami Police Department. We talked about so many things in this episode, including his own story, such a vulnerable share with a lot of humor that he threw into this episode. We talked about why there is only currently a five to 8% recovery rate for typical addiction treatment centers. And he really breaks down a lot of the details on the current models and why he created a very different recovery model that didn't exist at that time. We talked about TRT, trauma release technique that John created to help support people through their traumas to create long lasting change. And we talked about the resilience factor and how no matter how many challenges he faced, and he faced so many where he could have easily just given up, that he chose to never give up. And that resiliency, that choosing to keep going is really what created what he has today. And he even shares with us that If he had heard that he could create this years ago, he would have never believed it. So keep going, keep going, keep going. His mission and his purpose became so much larger than him. And he continued to set out to support others in dealing with their addictions. His book is called The Kid from South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. And I cannot wait to read it. I know you're going to absolutely love this episode. Welcome to the show today, John. It's so thrilled to have you here. Likewise. So and I'm we, always, always loving helping people. So you know. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Honestly, we've just chatted for about 20 minutes before we even hit record. There's a lot of things that we can talk about today. So first off, let's start with where are you from? Originally New York, but I've been in Florida since 1965. Okay, nice. I'm, a, nice I'm, also, I'm, also, I'm also a grandmaster in the martial arts, black belt hall of fame, uh, five-time national karate champion. Uh, all that kind of stuff. I do a lot of stuff. You do. I'm also a chaplain for the police department. Uh, I work with trauma people, police officers that have been in shootings. Uh, our guys are wounded warriors coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. 
uh, I do a lot of stuff. Yeah, you do. I, I love like, helping God kids. That's all, you know. I am so, I honestly, what a great way to start. So I was going to ask you what your superpower is, but I think you just told me. Like, I think you just, you just told me. Is there anything missing from that that is a superpower of yours? Uh, my superpower is uh, God bless me to be able to help his children. Mm, that's beautiful. That's my superpower. Whatever God is to anybody. Yeah, exactly. Whatever that is. I love that. So we have been chatting um, before we even recorded. And I honestly, I'm, I cannot wait for this conversation. I do want to start here is one of the things that you shared with me before we even started was that you have been treating and working with people dealing with addictions for 35 years. So mm -hmm. for 35 years, there is a five to 8% recovery rate. Yep. Something is not working. So can we start here? And can I'd you share with us what this means? Yes. It's really simple stuff. It's not even rocket science. Mm -hmm. Here's the deal. In the United States, okay, the way we treat addiction, okay, and, and basically I think almost all around the world, okay, what the problem is we call it a medical model. It's not. It's a psychological model. That's number one. Number two, in the United States, the insurance companies are basically running the treatment centers. So they tell you how long you could stay, what types of therapy you can use that doesn't work too well, okay? Um, and, you know, the problem is, is this. The 28-day model, you have a 28-day model in your, as well in, in Canada? Yes, I believe so, yes. Okay. You do know that's a 70, that's 70 years ago that was formulated. And it was based on alcoholism. Now, as we all know, okay, alcohol does damage the brain and hurts, but over a longer period of time, now we got fentanyl, car fentanyl, designer drugs. It's damaging the brain. And what's happening is people go to what they call detox. They're not going to detox. It's not detox. It's stabilization. If you want to, de if you look up the term detox, that means to detoxify not put other drugs in. So they go to the detox. Let's say it's on heroin, okay, or carfentanil, fentanyl. Uh, if they're lucky, they get seven days, all right? So now here's a guy that's using 20 years. He's got seven days. Uh, they, they, they give you other drugs, like Suboxone, uh, which is also an opiate, which is really comical in a way. If you know history, all right, in the 19, early 1900s, we had a morphine epidemic in the United States. Do you know what they use to stop? try to stop that? No. You're going to get a kick out of this one. Heroin. I, yes, I did hear this. Now, now, I tell your audience, and I always tell people, please do not be worried I tell you. Go look it up. Yeah. Anything I tell you, go look it up. It makes it easier because now we got these beautiful phones and computers and we can look things up. Yes, we okay? can. So here you are, you go to detox, uh, uh, stabilization unit, all right? So you come out of there, and if you're fortunate enough to have insurance or able to go to a treatment center, so now you go to a treatment center. Maybe you stay two weeks, maybe you get 28 days, okay? But wait a while, I'm still damaged from the drugs. Uh, also, I'm still on drugs because I just got out of a center that put me on drugs to get off drugs. And now I'm going to a treatment center. Okay, so for the first two weeks, two and a half weeks, 
I'm out to lunch. I don't know what's going on. I know when I went to treatment, I didn't remember anything they were telling me. So here I am. I'm sitting in a group with a bunch of people I don't know. I'm insecure. I have low self-esteem. Okay. I want to get out of there because I want to use. But yet I'm supposed to stay there. Maybe the third week I may bond with a therapist. And then the fourth week I'm gone. So guys used to 20 years, 10 years, five years. Now he's in 28 days. All right. So now they're doing talk therapy. Talk therapy works great, okay, to a certain point. I call talk therapy dealing with the software of the brain, Mm. okay? Mm -hmm. We need to deal with the hard drive because, as you know, when you have a computer, if you take stuff off of your computer, it's still on your computer because it's on your hard drive. Right. So I'm a, a, a trauma specialist, and I work with a technique called EMDR, Eye movement sensitization reprocessing. I redeveloped that. I do what is not. I just, matter of fact, uh, yesterday we had a film crew here at my house. I was just doing uh, Lamar Odom's daughter because um, she suffers from trauma. Talk about that. So I, I did this technique. I do it half hour, 20 minutes, I'm done. And she's still good. So, you know, wow. uh, I did it last week. And then last, yesterday it came again. Uh, I didn't do the technique again. I, I, What I do is I add the eye movement. I add NLP, non-linguistic programming, okay? Mm-hmm. I add, I'm a hypnotherapist also, so I do the tonalities of hypnotherapy. And I also do holotropic breathing. So I combine all those modalities together to formulate a technique I call TRT, trauma release technique. And um, it works extremely well. Usually, I only have to do one session. Maybe wow. I might have to do two, depending if I missed something or we didn't, uh, the person wasn't relaxed enough to get into the state that they need to get into in order for it to work the best. But that's that part. So now that's the therapy part. They used to have addicts, which gets with a, like myself, that got what is known as a CAP, Certified Addiction Professional. They change that where uh, people that have a CAP can no longer really do individuals. They may be able to do group if a licensed mental health therapist signs off. Unfortunately, mental health people really don't know about addiction. No. Okay. They're coming from a different place. Now, people that are addicts and alcoholics, okay, other behaviors are also have dual diagnosis. I would say most of them. So you have to look at, they used to be when you are an addict, you would go to a substance abuse treatment center and then they would take you out and put you in a mental health uh, institute to deal with your mental health issues, which was ridiculous because most people have mental health issues anyway when they have an addiction. And they believe sometimes they have that before they even become an addict. And what happens is sometimes the addiction itself uh, creates the mental health issues. It all depends which came first, the chicken or the egg. Yeah, they're all very depends. intertwined, right? Like very intertwined. Right. intertwined. Yes. Exactly. So we have to deal with the whole thing. And what we're not dealing with, which I find really interesting, okay, this is what I lecture about. Okay, they come into a treatment center, they do what is known as a psychosocial, which is really comical, I have to tell you. First of all, I'm still out to lunch in my head. 
I just got out of what we call a detox center. Okay. I still got drugs in me. And now they're asking me 90,000 questions. So I'm just throwing answers at them, whatever they want to hear. All right. Mm-hmm. I, I did a little funny thing with my treatment center. Uh, for the audience that doesn't know, I had a 62-bed inpatient, Jacob accredited facility, which is the highest standard you can get. I had a, 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 a an outpatient, an intensive outpatient. We had an aftercare program. So we had the whole gamut of treatment. So when, when they do the psychosocial, I, I had a little thing that I did with my psychiatrist. I said, I want to do another psychosocial two weeks from now. He said, why? We already did one. I said, eh, this is the one. You would think it was two different people. <laughs> That's the funny part. Okay. They went, oh my God, what, what why did you tell me that? Why did, why did they tell you? Because they want to get out of the chair. They don't want to sit there anymore. They'll tell you whatever you want to hear. Mm-hmm. That's what addicts do. Yep. Okay. And you know, they, they say, well, how do you know an addict's lying? He's moving his lips. Okay? That, those <laughs> words. Yes. Yes. It's true. Yes. Is that true, right? Yes. And they make and they believe what they're saying. You have to mm-hmm. understand. I know I believed everything I was telling you, mm-hmm. even though I was lying. So that's the story. So now you look at things. So what they do is now in the United States, I don't know about Canada, they have to put you on medication. Okay? Because if you're not on medication, that means you're not sick enough to be there. And the insurance companies won't pay. Oh, that's crushing. How's that sound? Awful. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Okay, so now let's look at it. You're still on drugs, okay? You're detoxing from the drugs they gave you, all right? So you experience depression. Well, of course you are, and anxiety, because, hello, you had drugs in your system, and now you're on empty. Your dopamine, which is your, you know, your feel-good drug that you manufacture, and serotonin are in the gutter. Of mm. course you're going to be depressed. Of course. Okay? But there's another reason for it also that's possible. All right. And we did the research on it. And there's not one doctor that will disagree with me. And I'm going to tell you what it is. Medical conditions that cause depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. You have closed head injuries. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, people say, well, what do you mean? Well, sometimes people get in accidents and stuff. And they don't even realize that they damage part of their brain. That's one. But also drugs damage your brain. Yeah. Hello. Okay. We know, we know that. All right. Uh, you want science groups? I'm going to give you all the science you want. You have a low thyroid, depression and anxiety, leaky gut syndrome, H. pylori infection, depression and anxiety, low testosterone, high testosterone, depression and anxiety, hypoglycemia, depression and anxiety. I mean, uh, it just goes on and on and on. Now you have also you have heavy metal toxicity, okay? And people go, well, well, what does that have to do? Well, it, it interferes with neurotransmission and it mimics bipolar disorder and attention deficit disorder. We're not looking at any of this stuff at all. Wow. What we're looking at is mommy left you when you were three, daddy beat you when you were 10. And you have, by the way, you have low self-esteem. <laughs> Come on. What are we doing? We're, we're acting like aborigines trying to do treatment. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Does this make make sense to what I'm saying? Well, sadly, it doesn't make sense, but it makes sense what you're saying, because if you think about it, like you're saying, these models were built from 70 years ago and built on alcoholism. They were not built on like the different drugs that are, and now the different kinds of drugs that are available. They weren't, they're not built on that at all. 
No, and, and it's really sad that what's going on and, and what happens is since treatment is so short, okay, that people, if they're fortunate enough to go to an intensive outpatient or an outpatient program, mm-hmm. okay, most of the time they go home and there's, you know, you really have to do family therapy and a lot of places really don't do family therapy because they go, you know what it's like when you go back into your family that's only knows you from using it's like going in the garden, okay, getting your clothes all dirty, going and taking a shower, and then coming back and putting the dirty clothes back on. Yeah. And that's what you're doing when you go back home. So if the, the people that are suffering with the addict, because everyone suffers when you have addiction, mm-hmm. okay, you got most of the, the, uh, the, uh, the family members are either enablers or they're codependents, or they just discount them completely because they don't want to deal with it. Okay. Uh, all of that doesn't work very well, by the way. No. Uh, so you need to treat the whole family. What people don't realize is a lot of families are addicted to the addict. And and that's one of the problems also. So they need help too. Unfortunately, today, what's going on, it's a lot different today than it was years ago. Because a lot of the, the people, a lot of the family members, they're using also. Mm-hmm. So now you're getting an addict that's trying to get clean, going into a family that's using and saying, well, we're okay because it doesn't cause, I don't have any problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's like a guy's an alcoholic. You go into a guy's house and he's got alcohol everywhere. You say, don't touch that. That's never going to work. No, so no, we that's have a such real a great serious problem in the world. Wow. And most people in the in China, what they do is is what I heard they do, and I don't know, this is not factual. So that they operate on the brain and they try to take a piece of the brain out to stop them from uh, using. I mean, crazy stuff. Now, there's another thing people say, well, why do people come out and become addicted? Okay. Well, I say, look, there's a number of reasons, okay. One of the reasons could be genetics. I work with Dr. Ken Blum. Dr. Blum is the geneticist who found the addiction gene. And guess what, guys? There is an addiction gene or an alcoholic gene, whatever you want to call it. And it's the I'll give you what the gene is. It's the DRD2ALE1 variant gene. Now, if you have the variant, you have the propensity to be an addict. All right? But... The social environment, which is called epigenetics, the social environment can change the gene expression. So that doesn't mean you have a sentence to be an addict. So I just want to let you know that if you have, you know, and we have a test called the GOSTEX test. It's a genetic addiction risk score test where they do the DNA. And they let you know if you have a low, moderate, or severe propensity for to become an addict. Now, People say, well, how do I know I'm an addict? Well, I'll make it simple. I I do a simple way of doing it. If you continue to use a substance or a behavior in spite of adverse consequences, maybe you have a problem. Real simple. Look, if you're gambling and you lose everything that you you have, you lose your house, you lose all your stuff, okay, and and you're suicidal, you think you have a gambling problem? So what is addiction anyway? Addiction comes in many different flavors. Mm-hmm. So what a lot of people don't understand is 
a lot of addicts stop using drugs and alcohol, and then they switch. Sex addiction, most of the cocaine addicts do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you have shopping addiction. Yep. You have eating disorders. Mm-hmm. You have, uh, uh, Jesus, you have every kind of people say, well, I mean, how about sex addiction? What's wrong with sex? Nothing. But if you're using unprotected sex and you're cheating on your significant other, I think you may have a problem. Mm-hmm. And if you continue to do that, in spite of adverse consequences, you might have an addiction. And See, that is that. that is such a powerful, if I just, can I just um, interject for one second here? Is yeah, because no, no, it just, there's something that's so powerful. What you said there is the fact that in spite of adverse consequences, that is when you know there's a problem. And I right. think that that's such a, a powerful thing to say because like that was something we encountered firsthand with um, within our own family is the fact of, but every single thing around us is blowing up. There is massive adverse consequences, but it's not stopping. And I often said, I don't know how many times people would say, well, it's just pot. It's not a big deal. And I'm like, well, but it is when their kids starting. And for some reason, for some reason, and it, this whole gene and everything you're educating on here right now is so powerful because for whatever reason, when it entered our life, it never left. It was never a face. There was no point of it that it was a face. It was in and it went and it took off. That's pretty much how it went on trajectory for us. So I think it's... I think that's for everybody, to be honest with you. Yeah. It's it's not like it's an in and out phase or a, you know, it, no. I wouldn't even say it was a coping mechanism because it just never stopped. It never stopped. Well, you know, here's, here's the problem. Like marijuana. Okay, look. Nothing's all bad and nothing's all good. Yeah. So let's just get you know yep. on, on that page. Yep. All right. A lot of the the, uh, the different substances that come out of marijuana or uh, uh, hemp plants and things like that help cancer patients, help yeah. people with pain. Okay. There's a lot of good stuff also, but there's always a but. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now let's say young people, their brain. I don't. I don't think their brain stops really developing till about 23 or. Boys, especially, I think it's 23 to 25. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So let's look. you got a developing brain. Now you're putting a chemical, a substance in there that doesn't belong in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do you think maybe you might be changing the way the brain functions? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just take a look at that. And, you know, you could see it because you see people that they have a lack of motivation. Yeah. Uh, they're all over the place. They can't focus a lot of times, you know, and, and, and they, they believe it or not. Uh, some people get angry if they try to quit smoking pot. And there's really a lot of stuff going on. I mean, look, is it OK to smoke pot? Well, look, there are people that smoke pot for many years and never have a problem. Mm-hmm. But we're all different. We are. I, I don't like playing Russian roulette, especially the one that's a, a six bullet gun with five in the chamber. Um, I don't think that's a good idea. No. Oh, yeah, I have a shot that it may not be me, but why would I want to take the risk? And another thing I always ask people is, what is, why can't you do for yourself what that's doing for you? Why do you need something outside of you to correct you? Mm-hmm. Okay. What are you, oh, you don't understand. I'm stressed out. Okay. What's stressing you? What are you doing about it? Okay. A lot of addicts are, a lot of people, forget addicts, are procrastinators. Oh, big time. And, huh? Big time. Big time. Right? Yeah. yeah. 
and and then they wait till the other shoe falls off, and then they get all crazy, all right, mm-hmm. instead of dealing with it when it's supposed to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Uh, family members that uh, have children or or significant others that that are addicted, uh, there's shame involved, there's guilt involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times, the the family members even blame themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then they don't even understand why can't you just stop? Well. What people don't understand, so I'll help people out. When you start doing drugs and you're putting chemicals in your brain that don't belong there, you change the way the brain functions. Yeah. It's like putting a virus in your computer and expecting computer. your computer is now going, two and two is six. And you go, well, wait a second. This is a $10,000 computer. You know, It must be right. No, it's not right. Two and two is not six. Yeah. Okay. So when you have a virus, look at the drugs and alcohol and things as a virus, and it's damaging the circuitry in your brain. Mm. Now, since everybody's different, people go, well, I've been doing this for years. I've never had a problem. I always say yet. Yeah. So let's look at let's look at what you don't have a problem with. Okay. So I drink and I never have a problem. Well, what happens if you drink and not your fault, a car hits you? Okay, out of nowhere, now you do a sobriety test. Now what happens to your life? Mm-hmm. Especially if somebody dies in the accident. It's not your fault, but you were driving under the influence. See, people that are addicts and alcoholics, they take their risk takers. So they'll take risk, okay, and f- figure, look, I did it ten time, nine times out of ten and nothing happened. Well, what about the one time? Well, that cop wasn't supposed to be on that corner. <laughs> I mean, this is the stupidity that we say, okay? So if people are wondering why treatment doesn't work, there's another component that we're not looking at. Time. People need time to heal. And the problem is 28 days is not the time. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a program in the United States called the Physicians Referral Network. It's where doctors that uh, are uh, become an addict and they turn themselves in or they get busted and they have to go to treatment. It's a 90-day treatment, inpatient, and a five-year aftercare program. They have about approximately an 85 to 90% recovery rate. Oh, my gosh. An 85 so, to 90% recovery? Yeah. 80. Yeah. Wow. Now, when I had my treatment center... Uh, which we sold in 2012, which we're going to talk about. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a kid from the South Bronx. I'm a street kid. I was in gangs. My father was a heroin dealer. Um, my family's a mafia uh, family. And I was telling uh, yourself what happened at my wedding. My uncle was a hitman, and uh, the caterer insulted my uh, my uncle at the wedding, and the next day he killed him. And my new bride and I had to leave town real quick because the cops were coming over to my grandmother's house where my new family and my other family, my, my oh family my put together. So, I mean, and, and this is the book, I'll push the book because I wrote it to help people. It's called The Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about this. I seriously can't. And, you know, so I wrote the book to help people, to motivate them, to show them no matter where you came from, no matter what kind of family. My father was a heroin dealer, like I said. My grandfather was a Shylock. For those of you who don't know what a Shylock is, it's someone who lends you money at an extremely high rate, okay, 
and if you don't pay, the rate changes gets even higher. And uh, if you don't pay then, then you get hurt. So uh, everybody pays one way or the other. So that's the kind of family, you know, when addicts start telling me, you don't understand my family. I said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll loan you mine for a while. Let me know how you do. <laughs> Make it real simple. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry for that. <laughs> well, we all have something, right? Like we all have something. It's easy to say, but my family, you don't understand. Right. You know, yes. it's like passing a guy that has no shoes and you say, oh, look at that poor guy. And then you see a guy with no feet. I mean, you know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know. So. Treatment needs to be anywhere from 60 to 90 days, depending on the severity of the illness. But insurance companies don't do that because of, of money. But mm -hmm. if they were really looking at the money, which I get a kick out of, well, let's look at it this way. I go to your treatment center, all right? I come out, two weeks later, I relapse. I go into Joe's treatment center, all right? I stay clean a month. Oh, I relapse again and go Harry's treatment center. Well, by the time we're done, we're at four or five treatment centers, tons of money going out, and I'm still relapsing. Well, that's a real brilliant model. Okay? Sorry, I'm not trying to laugh. I just, when you think about it in the way you're saying it, it's just so clear. I mean, it's just simple math. I mean, it's not rocket science. No. You know? So why not give it, and let's do it right the first time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's say a person goes into a 90-day program or 60-day program, depending, all right, and he should relapse. So he goes back into a program again. If he relapse again, then you shouldn't shouldn't get insurance for a year. Mm. Or you can't go in. Mm -hmm. So put a little, you know, lever on it. Because look, what people don't understand is this. The insurance company's job, that's why the model doesn't work very well. It's not about uh, how good a treatment center is or, uh, you know, and, and how much the insurance company wants the person to get well, it's about money. So, you know, most things in our world is about money, unfortunately. So if you look at it, the insurance company's job is not to pay you and to save money and to make money by not paying you. Right. And the treatment center's part is to get money. <laughs> I mean, it look. It kind of leaves the the patient out of like out of the loop even though it should be about them it isn't no now let's look at public programs like socialized medicine mm -hmm. people that go to treatment usually the treatment centers don't have enough money to really treat the person the way they need to be treated but we have treatment for them it's the client he's not ready well maybe he's not ready maybe he is ready but let's look at reality maybe mm -hmm. you're not ready Right. I always ask a question is this. Why do you continue doing the same technique over and over again and expecting different results? Right. Right. And it's only failing. Maybe we have to take a look at why we're failing. We don't want to look at that. You see? Uh, oh, there's no hard science about this technique and that technique. What people don't un understand is this. Like I said earlier when we were talking, I work with scientists from about approximately maybe about 20, 25 universities that are researchers, scientists, uh, clinicians. Um, it takes a lot of money to do research and you have to have what is called an end game. You see, there's a lot of good stuff out there that there's hardly that, not only anecdotal stuff, 
because they're not doing enough research. And now what is enough research? You right. know, research is kind of comical because you can really tweak things to go the way you want it to go. You know, our healthcare system is famous for that. So the bottom line is, is that, I'll give you an example, okay? I work with Dr. Paul Harch. Dr. Harch is a pioneer in hyperbaric medicine. So what is hyperbaric medicine? It's HBOT, which is oxygen under pressure, mm-hmm. which turns into a medicine. All right. Dr. Hart works for TBI cases, which is called traumatic brain injury cases. People that suffer from the also that have a stroke, uh, people that have wounds, wound healing. They, uh, Dr. Hart and Dr. Williamson went to the Senate and got them to approve wound healing for diabetics in, um, in the VA. And one of the reasons was, is that they were spending $70,000 on every amputee. And the hyperbarics doesn't cost much, and it really does the job really, really well. So they don't have to get their limbs cut off. Wow. Now, since there's not enough research, which is really almost comical also, uh, a lot of the, some of the neurologists go, well, I don't think it can heal the brain. Well, let me ask a question. Maybe I'm a little... Not too smart. If it, you have a cut and it heals the cut, mm-hmm. okay, on your body, why don't you think it might heal the brain? Since we got CAT scans, MRIs showing that it heals the brain. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, but you don't have enough people. How many people do you need? Confined people. Thousand, okay. I mean, it's almost comical because they don't want to pay for it. There's a lot of things that work that the insurance companies refuse to pay. Even socialized medicine refuses to use because they use the excuse that there's not enough uh, uh, research on it. I give you an example, amino acid therapy, which is amino acids are the precursors to neurotransmission. Okay. Mm-hmm. We know it works. Okay. So we did CAT scans. FMRIs, double-blind study, and we showed that Dr. Blum's formulation actually upregulated dopamine. Dopamine's a feel-good drug, and that's what addicts chase. Exactly. One of the other things that we need to do is we need to treat the gut. Like I said earlier, that's when 90% okay, of your dopamine and serotonin is manufactured. Now, it goes from the gut, and it goes what is called the vagus nerve, goes up the vagus nerve and the sedia and deposits it into your brain. But now let's look at it. You're genetically predisposed. So your brain, okay, doesn't accept the dopamine and serotonin because it doesn't have maybe enough re- a, a damaged receptor site or not enough receptor sites. So you have to treat the gut. We don't talk about that. How about exercise? Well, let's look at exercise. All right. Why is exercise important? Really simple stuff. This is not rocket science. No, it's Any not. cardiologist will tell you, after you have cardiac surgery, please exercise moderately, okay, but exercise. Now, why? Well, exercise releases all kinds of hormones and all kinds of different things in the body, but also depletes stress. Stress is a killer, okay? Actually, when, when your body goes into a stress mode, it also weakens your immune system. And also depletes dopamine and serotonin. But 
Exercise does two things. One, okay, it prevents the loss of dopamine and serotonin, but it also increases dopamine and serotonin. Hello, this is science. Don't believe me. Look it up. It's 100% science. Like this is yeah. this is science we're not talking about. Yeah, this is the science we're not talking about. Now let's look at our diet. I've traveled all over the world. I find it very interesting. Chinese people usually are not overweight. Okay, in the last 15 years, that has changed. Why? Well, if you go to China, you see KFC, Burger King, Wendy's, McDonald's. Hello, yeah. the diet has changed. Okay, all this processed food and sugars, and they're putting in chemicals in the food to make it taste good and mm-hmm. things of that nature. It's a nightmare. Okay, so it's very difficult to eat properly. I'm not saying it's easy. Okay. And you know, what's really interesting, people that have money, okay, people have money, it's real simple. They're able to buy the kind of food they need to eat. Yeah. People that don't have money. Well, I didn't have money when I was, you know, I was homeless when before, you know, I got divorced after I got into treatment, I got divorced and she got everything and I had nothing. And I wound up, my friend owned the hotel and let me a room, and I used to sit there with my kids, and we used to cry wow. together. Daddy, what are you doing here? I had a, a jar that I put quarters in when I had quarters. Somebody loaned me a bicycle. You know, I got depressed for a couple of months, and then I said, excuse my expenses. Screw this. You know, I'm going to go enjoy where I am. Mm-hmm. You know, because my, my sponsor always told me, John, where are your feet? So right here. Well, that's where you are. Okay. So I enjoyed my life, and I used to ride on a boardwalk in Miami Beach, look at the stars at 2 in the morning, and I really got to enjoy myself. And then when I got tired of that, I came up with ideas, and you have to read the book because I'm not telling you anymore. No, no, no. We'll definitely talk about the book. I do (laughs) want to know. Like, I do want to know if you were, if you can think back to the point where you enter treatment and like where were some of the turning points one to enter treatment and then how did treatment go for you in, in your first. Well, that's a good question because I didn't go to treatment because I thought I had a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to understand. Well, let me give you a little, let me back up a little bit. First of all, I was, I became a drug. I didn't use drugs until I was 20. Okay. Okay. Uh, I became a drug dealer. I used to do collection work for the smugglers. Uh, I was when I was a kid. I was in gangs. I got molested when I was a kid. So I could talk about anything you want to talk. I used to think I was cursed. Okay, when I was a kid. As a matter of fact, I went to a priest and I asked him to do extremunction to get the evil out of my body. And he says, "John, just do five Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers, and you'll be fine." Well, that didn't work too good. No. <laughs> so, so this is what happened in my life. So I can like when I tell people my life story and how I was in gangs and how I was doing all this other kind of stuff. And then I went to karate, and that helped me. Mm-hmm. And then when I was 20, that's when I started to do drugs. I was with a girl, and I tested drugs out. I did LSD, uh, and I was on a journey for about four days. And that, I tell the whole story in the book. And I did every kind of drug known to man. I did pills. I did. I tried heroin, but I didn't like that. I got sick. Alcohol, I got sick. So I never used that stuff either. Uh, you know, and went on and on and on and on. I was getting more and more crazy. Mm-hmm. So and that's what drugs do. My brain was really getting damaged. 
and I was hurting my family. But, you know, I, it wasn't my fault. If my wife was uh, different, I wouldn't be the way I am, you know. So yes. we blame everybody. We don't look at ourselves. I always tell addicts, if you want to know how to fix something, you want to know who to blame, look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Because that's the only thing you can do. You know, when people get, I do relation couples therapy, and I laugh sometimes because every couple is the same. Just about every couple. You know what they go? They're always trying to change the other person. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because, oh, it's for the best. They do this and they do that, and I want to help them. No. Look in the mirror. Tell me how easy it is to change yourself. Mm-hmm. I couldn't Not agree more. Not changing the other person. Yeah. Okay? I could not agree more. That's their journey. Okay? So, yeah, but I don't like that. Then why did you marry them? Why are you with them? You don't like it? You must like something. You're there. Hello? I mean, you know, where are you? <laughs> I yes. know you're right because, listen, I'm married <laughs> four times. I know all about that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? So uh, the wife I'm with now, my wife, who's the best woman I've ever met in my entire life, we're together 26 years. Mm. Now, I was married three other times, one for five years, one for uh, six years, and the other one was for uh, six months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I know what it's like to have dysfunctional relationships because I was dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Now, I could blame the women all day long. But, you know, here's the problem. Sick people, okay, uh, healthy people don't go with sick people. No. So if you say, well, he's an alcoholic and he does this and he does this, well, why are you with him? What does that make you? You know? Well, he's really got a good heart. Well, then take his heart out of his chest, put it in a jar, and then keep the heart. Keep the heart and move on. But there is there is a like this is where it gets really interesting, and this could go in a lot of different directions. Is the fact that there are a lot of people who are here to save others. I'm here to fix others. I'm here to save others. And right. yeah, and and then they follow that model as opposed to, you know, I say, we well, have to take care of yourself first. No, no, no. My job is to fix them. Like right. it's like, yeah, there's definitely. You know what I would tell people? I, it's real simple when they tell me that. Uh, how's it going? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How's it affecting your life? Yeah. Just keep banging your head against the wall because it's not working. You know what I tell people? Keep doing it until, you know, until you get tired of it hurting mm-hmm. because you're not fixing anybody. Look. If for those people out there want to know how to fix somebody, it's real simple stuff. Forget about what people say. Watch what they do. That's number one. Okay. If a guy says, look, I, I don't want to do this. So I want to change. Okay. Go to treatment. Oh, no, but I don't need treatment. I, I'm going to stop for a little while. I'll be fine. And look, we're all been down that road where the person says, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not that bad. See, when I went to treatment, I didn't go because I wanted to go. My family did an intervention on me. Now, I told you who my family was, so that's kind of comical. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I left too. I mean, now my brother's a drug dealer, or was a drug dealer. My, 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 my whole family is a mafia type of family, and they're doing an intervention on me. And mm-hmm. I'm going, who's doing an intervention on you? What am, what am I doing here? You know? Because we never see how sick we really are. No. You know? So my mother said she'll never talk to me again. And, you know, all the time your mother, they don't do that. You know, so I said, look, maybe I did too much. I'll just take a break. I had some Coke in my sock. You know, I took it out, went into the bathroom, did a couple of hits before I went up, you know. And I was so out to lunch. 
And I, I was afraid for anybody to recognize me, so I'm wearing these dark sunglasses. That's how my brain was not working properly because I taught a lot of the doctors and nurses kids and them, right? So one of the guys, the first day they came up from their um, the administration office and it's one of my students. So the sunglass thing didn't work anymore. No. Uh, I never unpacked my bags. I always had them packed, ready to leave. I was at the elevator, it must have been about nine times. And they would always grab me, put me in the office and talk to me. And I remember when they were saying, now remember, I come from an Italian family, old mafia type family. Uh, and I'm sitting in group and they're telling me, well, you got to share in group about yourself. And I said, look, if I had to talk, I have to kill you. I said, I'm not uh, talking about anything. And when the therapist tried to force me, I said, look, you keep messing with me. When you go downstairs to your car, I'm going to have my black belts beat the hell out of you. So, <laughs> I was a little sick puppy. Yeah, but so, that's, but that's where you were at at that time, right? Like that right, is where, where I think was... in context, that's where you were at at that time. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So here's the deal. So I went, I went in on December 4th is my clean day. And it's Christmas time. It's New Year's. It's Christmas Eve. I wanted to go home. I said, I want to see my kids. I don't want them to come here for Christmas Eve. I was lying. I wanted to go home because my friends would give me Christmas cards with coconut. Yep. You know, that was my favorite drug of choice. I did whatever felt good, but that was my favorite drug of choice. So they said, no, you can't go in. Well, I don't know about anybody else out there. I didn't just get angry. I used to get rageful. Yep. And it didn't go away. It took either hours or sometimes days. Okay. So what happened is I went to my room. I punched the door. You know, I was really pissed off. And I remember my therapist saying to me, John, do you ever get down on your knees and pray? I said, look, man, I'm a recovering Catholic. I said, what do you mean? God doesn't hear me unless I'm on my knees. How about if I'm in the closet? Will you hear me then? Mm -hmm. You know, he says, no, no, no. For humility. I said, give me a break. I got calluses on my knees. I went to Catholic school, okay? So for some reason, it resonated in my head, and here's the part that changed my life. I went to put my knee down, and Marsha, I couldn't get it down. Oh, my gosh. And I had to push it down. I know that sounds like stupid or crazy. but No, it's not. True. And I finally pushed that knee down, and I had to push my other knee down. And I looked up with tears in my eyes, angry as can be, Okay, say what whoever's out there, whatever this is, please take this away. I'll do whatever you want. And it disappeared. It actually scared me. Okay. The drive so, to use the anger, the anger, anger, all of it. Wow. Gone. Okay. And what happened was I tried to get it back. Okay. Well, it was your identity, right? It was it, it was work. part of you. Mm -hmm. That didn't work. So that's where it changed, the beginning. Mm -hmm. Then the third week in treatment or the fourth week in treatment, because I had to stay six weeks, but the fourth week in treatment, I had to go what is known as exiting. Exiting is when you sit in a room with all the doctors, the nurses, and the therapists, and they tell you your uh, sentence, whether you're gonna stay longer, go to long-term treatment, or uh, whatever. So, the nurses, the doctors, I said, John is doing great. You know, I started to turn around. I was doing great and everything like that. And um, the head doctor said, I never forget it. 
as Dr. Morgan, she says to me, he's full of shit. Just like that. Well, the attic, <laughs> you know when they say you can take the kid out of the street, but you can't take the street out of the kid? Well, yep. the attic jumped out and called her on all kinds of names and told everybody in the room that, you know, I could kill all of you and you'll never be able to leave this room because I'm a martial artist and champion all this kind of stuff. And the doctor and the doctor says, John, all we want to do is help you. I busted out into tears. I ran out of the room like I was inside my shoes. That's how small it was, you know, in my head. And that's where everything changed. Wow. You know, so it, I had, a, I call it a spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. And that started my journey in recovery. I didn't believe in going to the meetings. I thought they were baloney. I says, I didn't come here to join a new religion. Okay. Uh, how is some jerk that I don't even know talking about his stuff going to help me? I mean, I had every excuse. So, you look, when you're negative, you could walk into anything and everything looks negative. Yep. You know? So, and that's what addicts do, you know? They, they look at everything negative. I always tell addicts real simple stuff. I go, look, how's your worry? Well, you know, the, your best thinking got your butt in that chair. Your best thinking. So maybe you need to try somebody else's thoughts. That's a great simple point. Stuff. Not rocket science stuff. You got to talk to addicts directly. It's simple. You know, I always tell them, don't believe anything I tell you. Okay, just do it. If it doesn't work, don't do it. Yeah. I mean, I don't believe you anyway. Yeah, no, when you hit this point that it's like, which direction do I go? Everything is falling apart. How do I create change? There comes a point where it's like, okay, I, I know I've used these words that every decision I've made has brought me to this point today. So maybe if I want something different, I need to make a different decision. Well, you see, that's a normal brain talking. Addict's brain. I'm going to say an addict's brain. I wouldn't be in this position if it wasn't for you. Yeah. Or I wouldn't be in this position if it wasn't for this. They don't take responsibility for, I, I make it simple for them. Okay. It's their fault. What's your fault? What's your part? Mm-hmm. It's simple. Where do you begin and where you end? Yeah. Didn't you have a choice? No, you don't understand. I really didn't have a choice. How come? Mm-hmm. So, you have to know, and that's what the problem is with a lot of help people that are not addicts. It's not that they can't help you. It's that addicts relate to addicts. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, every addict is different. There are different types of addicts, which people don't understand also. You got kids that come from the street. You have to deal with them differently than people that run businesses mm-hmm. or doctors or nurses. So everyone across the, the needs different things. You know, kids that are people that are from the streets or that don't have any direction, uh, they need life skill training. They need a lot of, you know, different things. The other people need how to learn how to deal with life on life's terms also, okay, in their situations. Mm -hmm. So you have to really be uh, uh, a type of therapist that knows how to deal with different cultures. Now, I worked in an indigent facility, which is called an OTC therapeutic community. Now, the therapeutic community, okay, which is a free program, uh, I dealt with people that had uh, HIV, uh, had psychiatric comorbidity with addiction and and mental health issues. And um, their methodology, I was the clinical director, 
was like almost comical, all right? Now it worked for some people. I mean, we call it a third rule, okay? A third of the population that's addicted, you can put them in a closet and, and they get well. It doesn't matter what you do because they want to get well, mm-hmm. okay? Now, what they did was, let's say, for instance, at 12 o'clock, we had our food donated and we would give them cakes and chocolate. And about 12.30, 1 o'clock, guess what they would be doing? Acting out. And if you guys don't believe we got children, give them cake and chocolate. Let me know how they do. Okay? True. So then we used to put them on a bench, put a sign around their neck, telling them, like, you know, how stupid they're acting. We cause it, and then we blame them. I mean, it was like an addiction model the other way around. So I said, this is ridiculous. So I got with the, the all the patients, and I sat down with them and explained to them about what sugar does and processed food and, and, and why you, you get a high and then you get a crash and all this normal stuff, okay? And they were on board. I said, let's try an experiment and see how you feel, okay? So everybody was on board. And I used to teach karate to all the patients also that they had a different kind of rapport with them. And the next day we did that. And what happened was the program director, who was an alcoholic, you know, recovering alcoholic, and the therapist got really angry. I forgot to tell them that they didn't get their cakes and their chocolate stuff. So I started a riot in the treatment center. But, you know, I left there and eventually that's how I started my other treatment center. Is that where that, like, is that, was that the point where you went, okay, I want to start my own because I can see what's missing? Well, I actually, I I, I, I don't want to go into the whole thing, but actually when I was 14 months clean, I started my own treatment center. Okay. Okay. 14 months clean only. Like that was, wow. Okay. So what I did was I actually, my friend that owned the hotel had a lot of money and he knew me. I used to work for him for years and different things. And um, I told him that I had this famous doctor, okay, that uh, wanted to open up a treatment center. I lied. I never spoke to the doctor, okay? So he said, well, how much money do you need? So I said to myself, how can I ask him how much money I need? The only thing I know about treatment that I was in one. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not laughing. I can just picture this moment of like, I don't know what I need, but I know what I want to do. (laughs) Right. That's, That's exactly what happened. So I said, a quarter of a million dollars. So he said, okay, you got it if you got the doctor. So I went to the doctor's office, who was my doctor when I was in treatment. And I told him, listen, by the way, I have a quarter of a million dollars. Okay, uh, would you be interested in opening up a treatment center? So this doctor was a famous doctor, but he was always comical. And he said, you know, I was just thinking about that, John. And we opened up the treatment center. Now, I, I'm a street kid. I don't know anything from anything about what was ethical, not ethical, you know, in that kind of industry. Yeah. So all the people that treated me, I went to Mount Sinai Hospital. I decided to grab them and put them in our new treatment center. Smart. <laughs> so the program director, who made 29000 a year, I gave him 50000 a year. Mm-hmm. Well, the other therapist, I gave everybody a ten fifty thousand $50,000 raise. So they all came with me. You know, which really wasn't cool. I emptied out their program for that night. Um, the program took off like a, a bat out of hell. We were packed. Then one day, we couldn't make payroll. And 
So what do you mean you can't make payroll? Well, your friend, the guy that put up the money, was stealing money. <gasps> I said, wait a second. How can he be stealing money? He doesn't have the checkbook and he doesn't have anything in the account. Well, never mind. He was. What? So my friend told me they're stealing. I said, no, they're in recovery. So I got sober to get stupid, okay? My street sense went out the window like a moron, okay? I said, they wouldn't do that, okay? Well, I went into the doctor's office and said, hey, are you stealing? He put his head down and he says he had a sex addiction. He was oh buying God. apartments for girls. And oh he was paying for hookers. So this was the doctor you brought in to run your facility? Yes. Oh, my gosh. He was only three years clean. Oh. Okay. So here we are. Okay. So my therapist, who helped save my life, didn't like the fact that his client was his boss. Yes. So... Long story short, they tried to, they, they, they took the treatment center out from under me. I didn't have a lawyer. I didn't have papers. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was a kid. You, you mess with me, I punch you in the face. You know, but now I'm in recovery. I can't do it anymore. Okay. <laughs> so, so we winded up at the lawyer's office and they told me, look, either you give up your percentage of the treatment center or we're going to close and open up a new corporation and your friend's going to lose all his money and you're going to get nothing. Well, I had no choice, so I had to sign the papers. I went out of the lawyer's office. I called my uncle up, the hit guy. The guy mm -hmm. I said, I told him what happened. He says, I'll be right there. On the, I'll fly right now. Don't worry. I'll take care of it. So he was going to kill them. So I, I decided not to do that in the last minute. Sorry. I said, no, no, we straightened it out. <laughs> you know. feel like I'm like... Yeah, Early watching Sopranos and learning all these right. things at the same I don't time. Watch, people say, you ever watch the Sopranos? I said, why don't I know I lived it, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not laughing. I'm just, I, this no, is no, just no, so no. fascinating. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it's, if, if it wasn't so crazy, it really is comical. Oh, you know? okay. So, yeah. uncle, stay home. You said, basically, you know, yeah, don't no, come. No, no, stay home. I okay. said, no, I took care of it. Don't worry. Well, you see, here's the problem. I had to go get my, I, I, in order to get a CAP, you had to have 6,000 hours of supervised training. Mm -hmm. You had to have 300 hours of schooling. So I had all of that, but I didn't have the training. And who's going to take me, you know? Uh, so I kept my mouth shut for six years. And then, uh, I'm telling the whole book, but anyway, then what I did was, um, I got my CAP, and this you're going to find comical. Here I am up in Tallahassee. We're going to take now, the way you get your test is you had to do a case study, okay? And they and you had 200 questions that you have to, that they would pull from. They wouldn't tell you which ones and ask you questions about orientation, treatment planning, all these other stuff that you have to know, right? And uh, I had, I was always into alternative treatments. You know, and while I was there for six years, I learned everything about treatment centers. I did everything from every department. I learned everything. So my father always taught me, John, you have to learn everything. Okay. When you have a business, this way, nobody holds you hostage. Yeah. He was right. Okay. So what happened was 
I'm wearing a headset with all the questions that I had uh, from the test and the answers, you know. And I had this eye shades on with these lights that were, were blinking on and off. It was called a, I forget what it's called, a mind machine or something like that that helps you memorize things, mm-hmm. right? And I'm walking around like that, and I had a psychologist in there and a, and a LCSW, mental health guy, what girl in there, and they were laughing at me like crazy. They go, John, what are you wearing? I said, I'm telling you, this works. So anyway, I went to take the test, and the way they do the test is they sit you in a chair, down, they're up, so it's an up and down thing. There are three people that are not allowed to show any expression. They have a tape recorder, and you have to do a case presentation. So I go to start, and I'm a nervous wreck, and I go to start the case presentation, and one of the bellhops call into the room. Hey, anybody want coffee? Nobody's answering. So he keeps doing it. So I said, I think you better answer him because he's not going away. So they busted up laughing, and that broke the ice. And I was the only one that passed. They, they failed. So they all wanted my machine. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. Look, these are funny little things that happen, you know. But anyway, uh, so uh, afterwards, I, uh, I after I passed, uh, I went to the my therapist and I walked into his office and I said, look, I am going to rearrange your face and no plastic surgeon is ever going to be able to fix it. Then I'm going to call my uncle and he's going to blow your kneecaps off. Okay. If I don't get my contract, they were supposed to give me a contract for six years. I never had a contract. Yes. So he knew who my uncle was because my uncle got into crack cocaine. So we put him in treatment and I told everybody what he did for a living. They didn't believe me. All of a sudden they come running into my office. They go, you got to come. You're going to come. Your uncle. I said, what did he do? Did he hurt anybody? No, no, no. He's telling everybody all the people he killed. I said, what do you think I told you he does? I wasn't lying. Like, I wasn't lying. Why would I make this stuff up? It's like stupid already. Okay. So he knew who he was. They gave me a contract within an hour. Okay. I stayed a couple of months and then I left. And they gave me $80,000, which was a joke. They were making millions. Yeah. So then my friend who originally lent me the money said, look, I got another guy that wants to open up a treatment center. He wants a business plan. I said, I don't know how to write a business plan. He said, no, I'll help you. So I put together a business plan. I go all the way up to West Palm Beach. I'm about two minutes away. I forgot the business plan. Oh, oh no. Right? I can't go backwards. I got to go forward. So I told the guy, look, I'm embarrassed, but I forgot the business plan. He said, I don't need a business plan. He threw a napkin at me, and he says, tell me what you need. So I did. And he says, how much? I said, a quarter of a million dollars. I don't know. I kept saying that. Always kept working. making that same, saying the same number. <laughs> right? We had a 30-bed facility. I packed it. We were doing great. Anyway, he fired me. He was a corporate raider. I didn't read the contracts. I didn't have a lawyer. Again, stupidity twice. Okay? So here I am. He's, you know, We had an argument. He says, you spent... Uh, $700 in phone calls and blah, 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 blah. And I said, look, I'm from Miami. I said, this is West Palm Beach. I brought in $70,000 worth of business. I said, what, what, what's the problem? But the problem was he was the kind of guy that built businesses up using people that knew what they were doing, then, then took them over. Mm-hmm. So, and my 
sponsor, who I got a new sponsor, was working for me or with me. And I gave, he was making, I think about 30,000 a year. I gave him about 50 something thousand. I gave him a piece of the treatment center. And so what wound up happening was, I says to him, we got to get out of here. He fired me. And he says, he says, what do you mean he fired you? He showed me the contract. He says, he can fire me anytime he wants. Okay. So he says, I can't leave. So what do you mean you can't leave? You don't know how to run this place. He was counting on my sponsor. Mm-hmm. He said, I just bought a house. What? I, I can't leave. So I got devastated. I never forget it. I was in the parking lot, sitting on my car, on the hood of my car, and crying with a box of all my stuff. Here I am again. So then I worked at the better way with this place, the indigent place. And then from there, um, and it was almost comical. Uh, the girl I was going out with said to me, why don't you open up your own treatment center? I said, well, nothing to do with treatment centers. Forget about that. You know, it says, no, 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 open up your own. I says, I only have, I had a spending addiction, by the way. So that was another issue. So uh, I, had, I had every addiction known to man. Anyway, uh, I'm recovering from everything. But people say, what is your thing? Everything. Everything. You know, just, <laughs> everything. You know, whatever feels good, that's what I always gravitate towards. So anyway, I said to her, um, I only have $300 in my account. She says, well, see if the, your friend would rent you the 750 square foot building that was on his property. So I went to my friend who was another black belt and was a chiropractor. And I told him that I wanted to rent it. And he said to me, look, um, how much money do you have? I said, $300. He said, that's what it is, $300. Oh. I, he says, I tell you what, I haven't opened for about three months after you stop making some money and stop paying me. I said, okay. Well, instead of making a long story short, uh, we were help- I was helping a lot of people. And then I had my friend from the better way, from the indigent place, joined me. So he said, I said, look, I'll give you 50%. He was a businessman. He said, I said, I'll give you 50% of the company. He said, okay, let me see your books. I said, what books? He said, well, how do you know who pays you? I said, well, I take the money, put it in my pocket. They'll pay. Don't worry about it. So he says, no, 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 John, that doesn't work that way. So I said, yeah, but we're helping people. As long as we can pay the bills, I'm fine. You know? So anyway, I, and I think about it, it was so comical. He looked at me and he goes, oh, my God. You know? So what but there's such a sorry, there's such an undercurrent here of resiliency that I just I think is so I can't wait to read your book. So sorry, keep going. There's such an undercurrency um nature here when you describe what you did with this treatment center and how you so, grew it. So what so what wound up happening was is that he took over the business part and we were just barely making any money and everybody was laughing at me because I was using alternative medicine mm-hmm. like vitamins and acupuncture and all kinds yep. of stuff to help the clients. And they were going, yeah, yeah, go to Giordano's place and he'll put you on vitamins and he'll cure you. You know, so they used to laugh at me. Well, today they ask me, what vitamins should I take? So now they ask. It's more fertile, you know. So anyway, then we brought upon uh, my uh, partner's son, who was brilliant when it came to the internet. And we had creditors chasing us. We had all kinds of stuff going on and my, I had a new girlfriend, who's now my wife, by the way, mm-hmm. and we needed money to expand our treatment center because we just barely had money. 
So she had a brand new car. She had two kids and they were destroying the car. And I says, look, sell me, sell your car and give me the money and I'll get your car one day 10 times better. And she did. So her mother and father freaked out. Her brother freaked out. What are you doing? You just met this guy. Blah, 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 blah. So all this kind of stuff. Well, years later, I went to buying a Bentley. So we, we, uh, we got that money. And then what happened was my partner started to grow the treatment center. And eventually it turned into from a 750 square foot building to seven buildings, 147 employees. And uh, my, uh, our payroll was 240,000 every two weeks. Wow. Uh, don't ask me how this happened. I have no idea. Okay. All I know is I put one foot in front of the other mm-hmm. and I couldn't believe what was going on. And, uh, we sold it in 2012 for $45 million. From $300. So, yeah. If you would have told me that years ago before I sold it, I, I definitely would have punched you in the face thinking you're trying to make fun of me. Right. So, you know, and, um, We've helped so many people. Even when we didn't have money, we took people into treatment. You know, God has a funny sense of humor. You know, yes. uh, you just keep, the reason I wrote the book is to show people, I don't care what happens in your life. Okay. I don't care what kind of education you have. I, I mean, I really only have a GED. I got a lot of certifications. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, they gave me an honorary doctorate degree. Um, That's so awesome. I love this. Know, from China University, you know, but I mean, my life is like like a cartoon sometimes, you know. Well, uh, you've shared so much with us. And I know just from even before we started recording how many, like there's even more layers to what we've talked about. But I want to know, like, what, what do you think is it that has made you so resilient over the years? Well, you know, I, I got a belief in a higher power, mm-hmm. you know, but that, that wasn't the only thing, you know. Um, maybe my... The discipline of my karate. Mm-hmm. Um, discipline. Yeah. And, and and the focus, you know, I never focused on the money. You know, people want to make the money, a lot of money. My focus was never, never, ever on the money. It was always just helping people. Mm-hmm. That was my, and it's still my focus today. I mean, I have my own podcast. I, you know, uh, you know, beat your addictions if you want to see them. Uh, and I write books and I lecture. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, here. I am to help people. Somebody helped me when I couldn't help myself. Yeah, I. And I, let me tell you, for those who are resistant, first of all, I'm a street kid. Don't believe anything. Okay. Second of all, okay, I didn't want to go to treatment. I didn't have a problem. So I had everything against me. Even in the treatment center, they said, "John, we don't know if you're going to make it." Mm-hmm. If you don't change your attitude, even though we have to have the spiritual awakening, you know, look, you know, just because you quit drugs and here's what people don't understand. Addicts switch. They go from one thing to another. See, Dr. Blum, the geneticist who found the addiction gene, uh, had a new term that was incorporated. As a matter of fact, they're incorporating it now. It's called RDS, Reward Deficiency Syndrome. What does that mean? That you have a lack of dopamine and serotonin. So, Depending on your footprint, because is a different, what we call a different footprint, okay, you can gravitate towards drugs, alcohol, sex, 
gambling, food addiction, uh, all the different things. Now it's, uh, you know, pornography. Uh, now it's uh, internet addiction. Um, mm-hmm. All these different things. I said, well, what do you mean internet addiction? I said, look, it's real simple stuff, guys. If you're spending all your time and all your days looking at a computer, okay, you're not paying attention to your family, you're not paying attention to your, your wife, your girlfriend, or whatever, your, 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 your body is atrophying sitting there, mm-hmm. okay? You're getting... Uh, uh, all kinds of different illnesses because you're not moving around. Okay, maybe it's a problem. Mm-hmm. So it's it's this is not rocket science. If you want to figure out, you don't want to call it addiction. I don't care what you want to call it. Call it whatever you want. Yeah. Okay, but deal with it. That's Simple gold stuff. right there. That is gold. It doesn't matter what it's called. But if you go back to what you said in the very beginning, if it has adverse consequences on your life, then it's a problem. And it usually doesn't have adverse consequences just on your life. Oh, no. Addicts don't just abuse drugs and alcohol and other behaviors. They abuse people, places, and things. Mm-hmm. So that's the story of an addict. Yeah. There's so many things you've said that are so powerful. And I know I could honestly talk to you forever because I think there's so much that you're saying that's gold. I love also tying back early on in the beginning, if you could just talk really briefly about the family disease and this, you said it's either there are enablers, right? They are, I forget how you said it. You said they are, um, yeah, the family's addicted or they're, right. they're enablers or they want to just completely shoot them right. off the side. Well, they got the codependents, you know, they yeah. put the, the, the addict's life ahead of their own, yep. you know? Uh, and what for the family members out there, Listen, it's not your fault. Yeah. Okay, because a lot of families blame themselves. Yeah. And, and and what happens with a lot of families, the husband and wife fight with each other. You're too easy. No, you were too hard. And on and on and on and on and on. No. Okay. Not your fault. Mm-hmm. The addict made his choices or her choices. And that's just the deal. You know, people say, well, if they had good teaching at home, look. You could teach all you want at home. You could be the best. You know, ministers' daughters usually become a lot of, not usually, but, you know, a lot of times they can become hookers. I mean, it's like really funny or very sexually promiscuous because they were kept so tight. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, when, when, a, when a kid goes into the world, that's where they learn, unfortunately. Okay. Even though they have a foundation from you, it may or may not hold. Okay, but you can't blame you. I don't know about anybody else, but when I kid was born, I was there in the room. Okay, I didn't see a manual attached to his backside. Sorry. Okay, this is something you have no idea. We've just met. I have used that line over and over and over, and I'm like, I looked. There was no manual that came with this with this with this project. And if there was. I, I couldn't have read it fast enough because life changed so fast constantly. So sometimes it was a case of forgiving myself and saying, I did I make mistakes? Sure. But I, I literally did the best I could without any kind of manual. And I think that's, I love that you said that because this is speaking to parents who are in this space going, but what, what do I do? What do I do? See what, what people don't understand. Okay. Is even if their parents were drug addicts. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
and and because I was my my wife and I were drug addicts and we had the kids. Okay, mm-hmm. the kids can turn around and say, "I'm never going to be like that," or they could turn around and say, "How would I'm going to be just like that?" Yeah, people learn from two different ways, negative and positive. They okay? sure do. You learn, you know. They're like I always tell people: there are no failures in life; there are only lessons. And that's what people have to realize. There are only lessons. It's what you glean from those lessons that makes the difference. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to do the same thing over and over again until it changes. Yeah. So and so, no one's so perfect. True. If you know anybody perfect, please let me know because I want to pray to them. Because it's not real. That's not real. No. Right. It's no. not real. Absolutely not. Last time I checked, we were human beings. We certainly, we certainly are. There's just, I mean, you, the way you give back and the magnitude that you give back right now and what you do, um, I just want to give a little bit of attention and throw that back to you is the fact that you could have easily just taken your sales and went, okay, I'm done. And I'm not, I'm like, I'm done. I'm, I'm moving on. You can tell that this is like a lifelong purpose and mission for you. And I really believe like when you put that good out into the world, the money will sort itself out. It's all going to do it, but you still stay here. Like you're speaking, you're sharing, you're like traveling, you're keynote speaking. This is something that is super important and close to your heart. Well, I tell people this, I never, ever listen to anybody says, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. I'm 75 years old. I still train. I still work out. I even compete. I mean, hey, do I do it perfect? No. Do I eat perfect? Absolutely not. You know, but I do the best I can. Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh, I don't tell anybody to do something I don't do myself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I do I go to more. meetings? Well, we haven't been going to meetings too often lately because of Zoom, and I don't really like Zoom too much. But my wife's in recovery, so we have a meeting between us. Mm-hmm. And some friends come over, and we talk like that too. Nice. You know. Uh, and do I go to therapy? I go sometimes when I feel that I'm up against something and I don't really know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not dealing with it. Listen, there's no shame in the game for help. Just no. because I'm a therapist and I'm in recovery and I treat people. I only could take anybody as far as I go. And that's just the way it is. So the ones I keep remaining a student I'll become a good teacher, maybe a great teacher one day. That's that is absolute gold there. I only take anyone as far as I can go. And that's that's that piece of forever continuing to grow yourself. And I I love it. That's absolute gold that you're talking about there. So you have your podcast, which is Beat Your Addictions. Right. And your book which I've just looked up here on Amazon because I will be getting it. The kid from the South Bronx who never gave up. I love, like, I love um, the comeback story, the thing, you know, I just love the true stories of people who have fought through unbelievable circumstances in order to, yeah, I love it. What I wrote was this, just in the back real quick. I know we're running out of time. Yeah, that's okay. Here is my roadmap for positive change. There is one thing in this world, one special lesson, one constant that has guided me through the turbulent waters of life. This infinite rule, which most people know but ignore, or who simply do not follow their life lessons. 
That is, no matter what, no matter the circumstances, the obstacles, the people that get in our way, or things that slow us down, follow this one simple rule. Never give up on your dreams. Never let go of your passions. And especially, never give up on yourself or a God of your understanding. And that's, that's my words for people. That is such a beautiful and powerful message. Seriously, I, I am so grateful that our paths have connected. I cannot wait to share this episode and to share your book because I thank you for th- this area requires so much work. It requires so much education and knowledge and sharing. And there's so many people who need help because for as much as we see more people speaking about this, there's so many who are not, there's so many who are hiding. There's so many who are like engulfed in shame and not speaking. So I'm so grateful that you're doing the work that you're doing. Well, you know, you know, the bottom line is, is that when when I, you know, like like I say, we don't believe anything anybody says, but I've experienced mm-hmm. all of these things that they said to me that I'll have a life beyond my wildest dreams. I said, this guy's out of his mind, you know? I remember when I was in, 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 in the, uh, I, I didn't believe in God or anything when I first started. I mean, I came from zero, mm-hmm. okay? And one of the old times came up to me and says, hey, John, how about G-O-D? I said, look, man, I know how to spell. So he said, no, 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 no. He says, good direction. I said, that's my God. I'll take that. And that was my God for a while. So for anybody out there that doesn't believe in God, okay, believe in, if you don't believe in yourself, believe in good orderly direction. Let's see where that takes you. Mm-hmm. You know, when people say, well, I don't believe in meetings. Meetings don't work. I say, let me explain something to you. They work. You don't work. There's a difference. You know, oh, this doesn't work. That doesn't work. You got to take a look at your part. What are you doing that is not making it work? Right. You know? So huh. it's it's this simple. I talk to people real simplistically, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, for parents out there that are having kids that are, are, are addicts, don't wait. Because they're dying out there like flies. You know? If it hurts you, oh, he'll never talk to me again. Oh, she'll never do this. Oh, there's no. Keep seeking help. Mm-hmm. And I got addicts that say, well, I've been to treatment 10 times and it never worked for me. Nah, nah, nah. I said, let me ask you a question. I says, if you run out of drugs, do you say, well, I'm not going to get high today or you look for another drug dealer? You keep looking. Real simple. If you can't find one way to fix something that's broken, keep looking. Never give up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. I honestly, um, I know I could talk to you for a long time and I have absolutely loved this conversation. I will make sure that everything is in the show notes to connect to you and your work and your book and your podcast. What I have a question for you. One last question is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? The lesson in life I'm most grateful for? That I had the courage to keep going forward in spite of everything that happened to me. Beautiful. And I had a good team of people around me. I didn't make this successful. I had a team of people that made it successful with me. So it's not John Giordano's show. Mm -hmm. It's our show. Yeah. And that I learned. And there also had to be that point where you were willing to accept, receive the help 
from other, like this is, this is actually just want to ask on this question because it's hard sometimes when there is a lot of help available, but if you're not willing to receive it or not open to believing in your own worth to receive it, you can shut down help that's right there in front of you. Well, you know, I look at it this way. You don't have to believe anybody. Just do it. Don't work. Go to the next. Yeah, next. You go to get a drug dealer. He's not home. You don't go back home and stop. You go to the next drug dealer. I mean, come on. If when you want something bad enough, I promise you, you'll keep going. Yeah. That analogy is is amazing. Honestly, that analogy is so, so bang on. That's simple stuff. You know, you don't make it complicated for anything. See, when I wrote the book, the letters are big. It's the biggest that they would allow me to do for the publishing company. Mm -hmm. Because I don't like to read. They get intimidated when they see a lot of small print. So I made the print big. (laughs) Well, I cannot wait to read it. I cannot wait to read it. It's a lot of fun. You know, you'll see. I got got, uh, this other uh, film crew that was here. The guy says, I'm reading your book. He says, I'm laughing throughout the whole book. Even though it's serious stuff, he says, but I can't believe the things you've been through. Mm -hmm. You know, I could could tell you one more story, but I know we're running off. If you have time, if you have time for one more story. Oh, I got time all day long. Okay, give me me one more story. (laughs) All right, give me one more story. When I was using now, remember I was using, uh, I was the marketing director for a place called Flea Market USA. It's a book, Okay. And it had five, 500 businesses under one roof. Mm-hmm. And um, it was my student who owned the, the treatment, the, the, the flea market. And he wanted to sell me a boot. And I said, no, I want to work for you. I says, he said, well, you're karate, but what do you know about this? I says, he said, well, how much money do you want? I said, I want 1000 a week. Now, this is 1980, 1981. He said, 1000 a week? I said, I tell you what, give me $250 a week. Set the craziest goals you want me to attain. But if I do, I want a thousand a week. Well, within three months, two and a half months, I did all the goals. Mm-hmm. And they gave me a thousand a week. So they wanted the the, the best uh, grand opening that you could possibly ever want to have. So the biggest. I said, okay. So I had another friend of mine that knew James Brown. So this was Liberty City and Overtown in the black community. And what happened was they had riots there, so nobody else would go into the community. So what I did was I go around to all the churches, all the deacons, okay, I'm dancing in the churches, and, and I'm uh, I'm getting the SBA people, Small Business Association, to help people, teach them how to run a business, how to buy wholesale, you know, how to do all those things. And then I says, I want to invite President Reagan to the grand opening of the flea market. Everybody bust up laughing. They thought it was the craziest thing that I could ever say. I said, no, no, I want to do that. So I sent the letter to the White House. And the, the letter's in the book, by the way, because mm-hmm. I know nobody believes you. I got a letter back from the White House. They said the president couldn't come due to scheduling, but they're going to send a representative. And they did. They sent Carrie Meeks. Well, she went around to everybody, okay, about learning about me because they don't just – do you know anything unless they right. really research you, right? And then she went to the Martin Luther King Foundation, and they decided to give me. And I'm going to tell you how many people showed up at this concert. Um, if you go to my website, you'll see the people mm-hmm. in the concert. Um, there were sixty thousand people showed up. Oh my gosh! Now ask me if I ever threw a concert before. No. No. 
<laughs> but anyway, um, they presented me with the Martin Luther King Award in front of 60,000 people on stage. Oh, my gosh. That's an incredible story. Yeah, well, I got a bunch of them. I, uh, we don't have time. If you have time, I can tell you. <laughs> we have to do a part two to this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. You know, I, I'll tell you funny when you laugh about this one. Uh, you know, you always committed this, I guess, you know. Uh, what happened was it was Christmas time and uh, I had an idea. I said, I want to go up in a hot air balloon, okay, and I want to dress as either Sandy Claus or Rudolph, okay, and I want to throw flyers out over the city. So the owner said, John, you can't do that. We're going to get, you know, they, they're going to they're going to fine us the litter. I said, no, no, you don't understand. I want to throw your money out over the city. So they said to me, what? I said, yeah. So I made a sticker. I put it on the dollar bill, and I turned it into a flyer. And we went up in a hot air balloon, and I threw money out all over the city. And we had, we were on every radio station, every television station. It was a riot. I had so much fun, I can't even tell you. We went up four times. Now, the fourth time we went up, now remember, I was still, I wasn't high then using, but I was using on the weekends. Yeah. Sometimes during the week, you know. And, and we're up in a hot air balloon, and we caught a crosswind, and we were going out to sea. And I said, I am not going out to the ocean. I said, take this balloon, crash it into the building. I'll dive through the window. I said, he says, what? We're not doing that. So he says, well, I'm not going out to the ocean, but there was a, the bay. So we, what he did, he took it down, and we crashed into the, uh, the rocks there, and we slid into uh, a fire station. And I, my nose was like, I, I was blinking my nose. The, the, the fire people was hysterical laughing. Santa Claus and Rudolph crashed into the fire station. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's the story. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. Seriously, unbelievable. I cannot wait to read the book. I will definitely. Oh, read. There's a lot of things in there. Wait to say I did plays. I did all kinds of stuff. Yeah, this, I have a feeling just from, without even sharing, but I have a feeling from even the beginning of our conversation, like this is still, the story has so much more to go and be shared and go further, right? Like we definitely know what's going to. i it out to a movie. I'm trying to get it in, not for the money part, you know, not that I don't want to make money, but I mean, that's not the, the main goal. I know that people read this book because everybody's ever read it. I had about a couple hundred people yeah. that has read the book so that I know of. Yeah. Okay. And they say, this has got to be a movie. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do. Well, the motivate because look, everybody's been locked in their houses. They're suffering from depression. They don't have jobs. They don't know what to do with their lives. You know, uh, these are opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't look at it that way. These are opportunities. They, they absolutely are. And I appreciate this conversation, especially right now, like you say, as we're coming into, you know, two years of lockdown virtually, and it's been such a time. And I know, I know that's another entire conversation, but I do know, I feel it in me and from people I've talked to is like the pandemic that we're all going to see the mental health, the substance abuse, the effects it, it like it's, we haven't even seen this yet. Haven't even well, seen your, your body may be locked down, but your mind doesn't have to be locked down. Right. Keep thinking, keep figuring things out. Yep. Yeah, 100%. I can't. I mean, it's just a great time to be continuing to learn, grow, invest in yourself, like really take those dreams and do. When the lockdown happened, I lost my job on the first day indefinitely. 
And I remember I came home that night and I went, what if this is exactly the time you asked for to grow your business and to do something like I didn't want to have any regrets. So I had friends like watching Netflix for the first two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. They're like, it's going to stop. It's going to stop. And I'm like, I am using every minute of this time because I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. And that's exactly what happened. Like it, it's, it built, it became a full-time business and it was just like, I'm not going to waste this time. Then it gave up? No, no, <laughs> I did not. Okay. I, I still don't. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> I still don't. Even like to the stubborn side of me, but I know I still don't know. I do not know. Yeah. No. You know, you can Too take much. a break, but don't give up. <laughs> no, no, no. So good. So good. Thank you so much for your time and your energy, your wisdom, your humor today. I'm so grateful for our connection, honestly. I had a great time. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. If you love this episode, please submit a rating and review on iTunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast. I love connecting and meeting you. So please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or Instagram stories at Marsha Van W. And until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.